Mark quickly jumps through the events of Jesus Christ, the events of the gospel, doesn't spend too much time in any of them, and doesn't give a whole lot of commentary on any one of them. We compared it to almost like a highlight reel. If you were to sit down and don't want to watch the whole game, so you just watch quick highlights of the game, and boom, 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 boom. That is what you get with uh, Mark's gospel is just these highlights. And one method he uses to kind of keep you engaged and walking through it is he, he writes pretty much the whole book in present tense. As if you are right there in the moment, in the event. So that as you're reading it, it's less about thinking, oh, I wonder what, what was happening back then to those people. But that you would see, as it were, your face in the crowd. That, that you would be present there. That when he calls his disciples, you would see yourself in that moment. As he heals, you would see yourself either as one being healed or one t- looking at that. that. That as it is present, you would be right there. We <clears throat> sing a song sometimes, uh, Redeemer Jerusalem. And it walks through the passion of Christ that last week. And the whole song is in that present tense. See him in Jerusalem, walking as the crowds walked. And it goes through and it gives you that sense that this is confronting you. This decisions, the, the, the words that are being spoken, the decisions that are being required is right now for you. And Mark writes that way for us. Remember, he, he really goes about three answering three questions, asking them and answering them. Who is Jesus? Why has he come? And what does it mean to follow him? We looked in the first 12 words in our translation. He answers the first question. It doesn't take long to get there. As he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King Messiah is here. The Son of God, God in the flesh, that is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah King, he is here and he's offering something new for you. He is the Son of God. And then we looked yes, last week at the text. He quickly begins to tell you, what is he here? Why has he come? Here's the Son of God, but why has he come? He has come to stand where sinners ought to stand. He has come to stand in your place. As he stands there in the waters of the baptism for repentance, the sins of the people polluting that water, the sinless Savior, Jesus Christ, standing there where sinners ought to stand. As he is in the wilderness, a place of of preparation, a place of testing, he stands where sinners ought to stand, facing the temptation. We saw not like Adam, who enjoyed a garden and an Eden, where everything was as it ought to be, and creation was as it ought to be, and food was plenteous for him. No, Jesus stands in the world that Adam left, a cursed world, with wild beasts around him, not susten- no sustenance for him. And it's it, in there that substitutionarily, he stands for you. He's come to stand where sinners ought to stand in order that he can offer us forgiveness and fellowship with God. And then what does it mean then to follow after this Christ? So Mark quickly moves along. Verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Very little is said here about John's arrest. He was arrested. He would soon face execution. 
But Mark simply makes the comment, John has come, he has, he has served his purpose that Jesus is coming, and now Jesus is here and about ready to offer his first sermon. He's been inaugurated for this task. As God spoke, this is my son in whom I am well pleased in the waters of baptism. He's been empowered by the Holy Spirit and set about to carry out now his mission. And now in the midst of this difficulty, in the midst of this difficult circumstance, the gospel of the kingdom is about ready to be proclaimed. It's funny, R.C. Sproul makes a comment on this. He says, Jesus' announcement of the good news in the immediate context of the arrest and coming execution of righteous John epitomizes Mark's presentation of the gospel. That is to say that the good news is being announced, but is being announced in enemy territory. It is light invading darkness. The gospel of the kingdom isn't to a life of ease. The gospel of the kingdom is a call to follow after Jesus Christ. And so right off the bat then, we have almost as it were like a press conference. Jesus steps to the mic, says his first words. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. That is, that the time is upon us. It now marks an important time in history. The, the phrase there is interesting that it is used. It's not so much that it's like, okay, 11 o'clock on a Sunday has arrived, time to preach. It, it, we don't have the exact English equivalent, but it'd be like that if you think of the difference between historical and historic. Something's happened in the past. An event take, took place in the past. Therefore, it's, it's a historical event, something that happened. But not everything that took place that is historical is historic. Some are just ordinary events. This time, this event is going to mark all time. It'll be, you will measure things as before this and after this, just like we do. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domine, the year of the Lord, after Christ, The time is here that is going to be the fulfillment of everything coming up to it and that will mark time going forward from it. And here is what we have. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Man, Mark doesn't mince words, or Jesus doesn't, as Mark records them here. Four of the most important themes and concepts that are going to arise out of the gospel in the New Testament for us is the gospel, the kingdom, faith, and repentance. All of it right here for us. We'll look at all of these a little more as we, or a lot more as we go through Mark and this call to faith and a call to repentance. We'll look at the gospel, both sort of a, a narrow sense of the gospel that's when you look at scripture, it speaks of the gospel in a narrow sense and a bit of a broader sense. In, in a narrow sense, that Jesus' life and death and resurrection in order to save sinners, the gospel events, it is never less than that. Sometimes the scripture will speak of the gospel as that plus some of its effects in your life. But the word we want to focus on right now is kingdom. Kingdoms used over 160 times in the New Testament. And yet I feel like often we are uncertain what we're saying when we talk about the kingdom of God. 
It's either not used at all or it's just thrown around really loosely. What do we mean? What are we saying when we talk about the kingdom of God? I want to take just a few moments, kind of hammer down on this. The kingdom of God, and when we see it in Mark and we see it in the Gospels, I think it, it comes at us in really three sort of emphasis or three uh, different ways that we recognize the kingdom of God. The first way it, when it talks about the kingdom is it's just referring to the rule in the reign of Christ. The rule in the reign of Christ. That where Christ is reigning and there are subjects who are acknowledging that reign and the enemies of God are being defeated, there is the kingdom of God. He is the king. So it is his rule and reign. So in the most general sense, that is the kingdom of God, where he is ruling and reigning, where subjects are acknowledging that reign and worshiping him, where his enemies are being, and oppressors are, are being vanquished. More specifically in the gospel, when it speaks, the second way of the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is really the arrival of the Messiah. That the king is here, the Messiah is here, as it's recorded here. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. As if Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled, I am here. The king is here, the kingdom of God is at hand. When the, the, the promised son comes to vanquish the works of darkness, when the promised son comes to bring fellowship, to bring forgiveness, to restore a creation gone wrong by sin, when that son arrives, the kingdom arrives. He is bringing the kingdom. And so it speaks specifically to the, the moments of the messianic king of Jesus Christ's arrival. The kingdom is here and then again, as it speaks then of kingdom on throughout the New Testament, it has the idea then of the kingdom of God as the age to come, the kingdom of heaven, really breaking into or invading the age that is passing away. It is the presence of the future right now. What God promises, again, in, in restoring fellowship to God and bringing forgiveness of sin, of being unhindered by sin, of vanquishing enemies, of, of healing diseases, of relieving uh, injustices, all that is, is promised in the kingdom of God, it is that future promise breaking in into reality right now so that the kingdom in a very real way right now is upon us. It is not fully known, it is not consummated, it is not fully recognized, but it is indeed here. The kingdom of God is at hand, that he is reversing the curse, that he is making all things new. That he is saving sinners and vanquishing his foes. And so when we talk in scripture about the already not yet idea... It's that in Jesus Christ, the, the end is upon us. With the victory of Jesus Christ, we await when he puts Satan and sin fully and finally away. And there's no more suffering and no more tears and no more sorrow. Where our labor and our work is satisfying and makes sense and the fruit of our labor matches the labor. All of those things we long for that we don't experience right now but right now it is breaking in so that indeed we are citizens of that kingdom right now. 
even though in many senses we also await a heavenly kingdom. So the kingdom of God then works in those ways. Generally the rule and the reign of Christ, where his subjects acknowledge that reign, where his enemies are being vanquished. Specifically in the Gospels, where Jesus Christ has arrived. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ, the king is here. And then again, more generally, of the age to come, all that is promised in our redemption and the renewal of creation, breaking in in the age that is passing away. Now let me give you five encouragements about the kingdom. And then we're actually going to go all the way through verse 34, but we won't be here all day. We won't be here all day. five encouragements about the kingdom that hopefully will be helpful for us. One is that speaking of the kingdom is good and necessary. Speaking of the kingdom is good and necessary. I say that some, I think, are, are nervous to speak of the kingdom because they think of it as holy future or maybe belonging to not to the church, but to Israel alone. New Testament never communicates that. The the kingdom is at hand. Like I said, it's mentioned 160 plus times. All through the Gospels, the apostles have no problem talking about the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand, the gospel of the kingdom. It's a good and necessary thing to speak about. It's part of our theology. So it it belongs to us to speak of. And yet, I'd say a caution that the way it's spoken about is that the kingdom is not wholly or even primarily a social matter. The kingdom of God is not primarily or wholly a social matter. I say that because often when you hear the kingdom of God talked about now, it is almost equivalent to, uh, to, to doing social work, social services. In that feeding the poor and caring for the needy and um, helping those who are oppressed and all of those things that very much indeed belong to the kingdom. So it's not as if they are not important or of no sense at all belonging to the kingdom. But the kingdom of God is not wholly feeding the poor. The kingdom of God is also the end of unrighteousness. It is the defeat of the unrighteous. It is the putting away of all wickedness and all unrighteousness. God gaining victory over all of his enemies. I think it's just important for us. We get excited and we'll talk about doing kingdom work. But simply giving a meal to someone, yes, in a way belongs to that work. But that is not wholly what the kingdom kingdom of God is about. It's just social help. It is about God vanquishing his foes. Psalm, the Psalms are really helpful in this. As you, if you notice, as we went through all of the Psalms in our worship over a couple of years, and having them read for you, and you see those themes of God caring for the needy and being a fortress and a stronghold, and that uh, the, the oppressed run to him, and then it goes right into a theme of him dashing the unrighteous against a rock and, and crushing them. All of this belongs to the kingdom of God. Third, there's not, how is it? There's not a hard division between the kingdom and the church. There's not a hard division between the kingdom and the church. Again, they are not the same thing, and yet 
God primarily is doing, building his kingdom and establishing his kingdom through the church because that's where all the subjects of his kingdom are. <laughs> Those who recognize his authority and worship him as king. And so again, we want to be careful that it's not that we, we kind of downplay, well, we just gather here and we just study or whatever, but if you're really worried about the kingdom, you'll be out there doing something. Y- yes and no. The kingdom it happens and takes place primarily through the church. Fourth, I have five things. Fourth, only God builds the kingdom. Now, I don't want to be too hyper on this because I'm probably I've probably been guilty of talking about as we build the kingdom or expand the kingdom, whatever it is. So I recognize just because someone says that doesn't necessarily mean that God isn't needed for the kingdom to be built. But it is important we recognize only God builds a kingdom. When you look at what is attached to kingdom in the, in the New Testament is we enter the kingdom. We receive the kingdom. We participate in the kingdom. We reflect the kingdom. These are the things that take place. We don't build the kingdom or expand the kingdom. Only God does that. We receive and inherit and enter. Then fifthly, The good news is how we enter the kingdom. It is the good news is how we enter the kingdom. We cannot forget that, that when you're out and about doing work or ministry that reflects the kingdom, it is the good news of unrighteous sinners who have faced the heavy hand of God's wrath being brought into fellowship with God. Forgiveness of sins. It is the gospel, it is the good news that is entrance into the kingdom. So that needs to be first and forefront and foremost when we think about doing kingdom work. Is that entrance of the kingdom comes through proclamation of the gospel. So when, we've busted on the saying before, but I think it's Francis of Assisi maybe said it. When it's share the gospel, use words if necessary. I get what he's meaning in the idea of, uh, you know, your, your work should, your word should be accompanied by deeds. Don't just have an, an empty theology that never works itself out. Yes, word and deed, but it's proclamation of the gospel. That's where Jesus starts. He proclaims the gospel of the kingdom. So the kingdom of God, it's good and it's necessary for us. The Lord is building it. He's building it primarily through his church. It reflects renewal of his creation, but entrance into it is through the gospel. So the first reaction to the gospel of the kingdom, faith and repentance. Faith and repentance, that is how we enter the kingdom. And then really the next sections here are Jesus then establishing his kingship or showing you what it, the kingdom of God looks like. What it means to be part of the kingdom. And really answering at the same time the third question. What does it mean to follow Christ? So, verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. 
Again, not much context Mark gives us. He's not hiding the fact that probably Jesus, well, we know he has from the other accounts. He's interacted with these men before. There may have been a little more that took place, but Mark, I think, is in the starkness of just these comments. He says, follow me. They drop their nets and they follow. They leave their parents and they follow. He's giving to us what it means to follow Jesus. Immediate submission to his authority. The way Mark tells this, in that culture, whether it would be uh, a philosopher or a rabbi of that time, they didn't go around picking their students. You would have students who would give themselves to education and learning, and as they do, they start seeing, man, I like the tradition of this rabbi. I like the teaching of this philosopher. I'm going to pursue them. That's going to be my teacher. And they go, and if they can qualify, then they become a student of this person. That's not how Jesus operates. It's not these men seeking out Jesus. Jesus speaks. He calls, and they follow. He calls, and they become his servants, his followers. So you see Jesus' authority and his initiative in calling people into the kingdom and calling people to follow him. He takes the initiative there. It would be a stark contrast to how it took place uh, with the rabbis, philosophers. Also, as he calls them to be fishers of men, it's interesting because some of it obviously is a bit of a play on words as they're fishers and now he's telling them to be fishers of men. But if you go back and look at the Old Testament, there's lots of prophecies that speak about God in his fishing. As if men are in the streams going by and talks about God hooking them and pulling them from the stream. And it's in this time of decisive action is about to be taken, judgment is at hand. The day of the Lord is at hand. It's in the context of eschatological judgment that this fishing takes place. And so I think there is some of that in the background as as Mark records records this of Jesus calling and says, I will make you fishers of men. You follow me. The, the, The response is the kingdom is at hand. A decision needs to be made. Either there's going to be judgment or deliverance. The the eschatological judgment is at hand here. Come, call people. Say, help me, help me in this mission of saving people from judgment, that they might know mercy, they might know grace, they might know forgiveness. So he calls people, and so we see that. In this calling of the disciples and his first move of the kingdom, we see his authority. We see the followers of Christ submissive to his authority, obedient to his call, and then participating in his mission. What does it mean to follow Christ? Submission to his authority, obedience to his call, participation in his mission. I, I just think it's remiss to past that we're entering into something remarkable here that so early on Jesus is inviting people into the kingdom mission being part of it it's not like he went to Jerusalem and picked like the best scholars or went to Athens and the smartest people he's going not that these fishermen were dumb I mean they seem to have a a good business going but he just calls ordinary people And he calls them out to be his followers that they can participate in his mission of salvation. 
in the spreading of the gospel of the kingdom. And we know Peter, you know some of his story, it's not like he didn't have his ups and downs. Remember James and John, the end, just a couple years later, they're going to be arguing like who's the greatest in the kingdom between the two of them. I mean, these aren't people who are without sin. I think it's encouraging for us to hear that. That God calls and he uses us. Maybe some of you are more impressive than the others, but we're all pretty much just ordinary people. And God takes and he calls and he uses us to participate in his mission of salvation. Jesus then continues to demonstrate his authority as he goes into the synagogue. Verse 21, he went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and he was teaching And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Again, I don't think Mark's busting on the scribes so much as he's just saying there is a noticeable difference. Here you have the scribes come and they have, you know, to prove they have authority, they're looking at their teacher and saying, here's what my teacher said, and here's rabbinic tradition, and, and here we are down the line. Jesus comes and proclaims the kingdom with original authority. It blows the people away as he would take the Old Testament and say, I am the yes and the amen of these. And so he he comes and as he proclaims, they are blown away that the word here, the word made flesh, he speaks with authority. It goes out with authority. And immediately there was in, verse 23, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And all were amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands and even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. Again, a demonstration of what kingdom power and kingdom authority looks like. He speaks with authority, with teaching as a living word. He initiates and draws in his followers by his initiation and hearing their voice. He invites them to participate in his mission Now he demonstrates his power over darkness, his power over evil, that he is all-powerful. With one word, he can tell that unclean spirit, be quiet, be silent. You know, you don't read much about demonic possession in the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden you hit the Gospels and Acts, and it seems to be everywhere. And it's not like it's completely... Uh, something we never hear about anymore, but rarely do we talk about it, hear about it anymore. And you see that demonic activity because it is the light breaking into darkness and war is being waged at that moment as the kingdom of light is here. The kingdom of darkness wants none of it. And just as the promise that the seed of the woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent, that that ministry is beginning and God, through Christ, is demonstrating his power and authority over the devil, over darkness, that he indeed can deliver from the works of darkness. It's interesting that it's the demons, it's the devil who recognizes who God is. 
The crowds might not know who this Jesus is. The disciples are a little uncertain at times who Jesus is. The demons, they don't believe in, in, we'll see, in true faith and repent. But they know this is the Son of God. That's his confession. You are the Son of the Holy One. And then really, Christ answers in affirmative by his action. As the spirit, unclean spirit cries out, have you come to destroy us? Was it 1 John 3 tells us? The Son of God, Son of Man, has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Yes. So we see just as much a part of of kingdom ministry is bringing that healing and and bringing relief. It is also vanquishing unrighteousness and vanquishing the foes of God. And Christ does that. While we move to our last little section here, verses 29 to 34. It says, immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. The fever left her and she began to serve them. And then you see this becomes his routine. He goes into the house here of Peter, Peter's mother-in-law. He's going to bring healing to her. It's interesting, I think, that this story is the first one that is included here of healing because there's, there's more powerful demonstrations of Christ's healing than this sort of intimate setting with someone sick with a fever. I, I think what's being demonstrated is more than just the power to heal is the mercy and compassion and tenderness of Christ. He's in the synagogue. All of this is taking place. It says that his fame is spreading everywhere. People are coming to see him. And now we move to this much simpler sort of intimate setting in a home with some people he knew. And he cares for this ailing lady. He shows compassion, mercy, tenderness, and brings about healing for her. Again, I think demonstrating what marks the kingdom is, yes, a Christ who will crush his foes, but at the same time is moved with compassion and tenderness towards the hurting. It's caring towards those who are in need. And you see it kind of in a sweet, tender scene here at the home of Peter's mother-in-law. A couple just interesting side facts. One... Peter has a mother-in-law, which suggests that Peter's married, just as we think about the Roman Catholic uh, world, and um, Peter is the first pope, and they're called a celibacy, just something interesting. There's a problem there for them with that, that Peter doesn't have a mother-in-law if he's single and celibate. Um, and secondly, that when he calls the disciples and they immediately drop their nets and drop everything and follow him, sometimes it can feel a little like overly harsh, just abandoning their family. I think we have a note here that shows us it's not that Peter had no interaction with his family ever again or that Jesus isn't caring about the family of his disciples either. But the call is when Jesus shows up and with his authority, his call to obedience, participating in his mission that he has set forth, our allegiance starts there, above occupation, above family, 
above successful, financially successful business ventures. You see, they, they got partners here in this fishing game. They, they, they seem to be doing all right for themselves. God takes initiative, he calls, and they follow. As we go through Mark, we see the kingdom of God. Don't shy away from it, but rejoice in that indeed in Jesus Christ, the kingdom is at hand. He is bringing it near. And that the age to come is breaking into the age that is passing away. And that we don't build the kingdom. God does that, but we've been invited to inherit it, to enter it, and to participate in its mission. And at the center of that mission is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Indeed, he has come to save sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel which goes forward. Lord, might we hear it, receive it. Might you give us faith and repentance.